0: Good morning. Good morning. I have been traveling the last couple of weeks and it is great to be back. This is the second of a really a two-week series. Ted did a great job last week on talking about serving. Today I want to revisit the subject I talked about three weeks ago and talk about community. Let me set it up this way. First of all, I have to say to you, Ted, we Calvinists don't believe in luck. It's a theological statement and You know, I just wanted to pass that on, and obviously that went over like a lead balloon. (laughs) Our dream here at Wheaton Bible Church is that we would be an open, highly relational community where it's easy for people to connect with other people in meaningful and significant ways. So what I want to do today is build upon what I talked about three weeks ago when I talked about the subject of community. And I wanna paint a biblical picture of what gospel-centered, significant community looks like, what some people are calling thick community. Now, that's not community for thick-headed people, although we're all thick-headed, I guess, but rather thick community in contrast to thin, or superficial community. But instead of me trying to sell you something this morning or pretending to be something we're not, I wanna talk about one of our weaknesses as a church here, Wheaton Bible Church in this very area, and I wanna begin with this to kinda get it out on the table so we can look at it and think about it and then talk about it through this message this morning. Uh, and he, so here I go. Every church has strengths and weaknesses, right? Every single church. Large churches have their set of strengths and weaknesses. Smaller churches. And each of us is, uh, churches have different sets of strengths and weaknesses. And one of our strengths is we're really good at welcoming people. We're really good at the front doors of our different ministries of our church. Uh, letting people know about them. Inviting people into them. But where we're not so good, and this is where we have a, a, a weakness is that for many people, or some people, especially new people, find it difficult having come through the front door to connect with other people in significant and meaningful ways. So we've got a a great approach at the front door, more difficulty getting people into the living room, the living room of our lives, the living room of our ministries, both literally and metaphorically. So let me illustrate this, let me read you an email representative email, some feedback we got a couple of months ago. I can only speak for myself, but our family just didn't feel connected at Wheaton Bible Church. The youth program is amazing, and one of our kids would love to continue. It seemed, however, that many adults, men, men, and women had their own group, and so for me, as a woman, going solo seemed intimidating as someone new. We spoke with someone about joining their small group, but we were told it was full. So we plugged into another Bible study, But, but the people really didn't get to know us. Now, there are many things we like about Wheaton Bible Church, but we never felt a part of the community. And so this family has left the church. This morning I want to talk about this. We are an 86-year-old church in a fairly uh, traditional, settled area, and, and, and so one of the results of that, one of the fruits of that, it's both can be both a good thing and a bad thing, is that many people in the church have relationships that go really deep that have existed for years and years and years. Some in cases, decades and decades and decades, and so the relationships get fixed over time, formed and closed. And today we want to look at what God's Word has to say about that. So grab your Bibles and turn with me near the end of the New Testament to the little book of 1 Peter. If you're using a Bible in front of you, it's page 1201. In 1 Peter chapter 2. And what I want to do today in this passage Is I want to look at Peter's vision, then I want to look at the the nature, the barrier, and the key to community. Let's pick it up in verse four. First Peter chapter two and verse four. As you come to him, that would be Jesus, the living stone. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now in the next couple of verses, Peter quotes three different Old Testament passages, all with the stone. He's building a, a, a building upon that discussion. But let's skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let's start with Peter's vision. Let's unpack a little of this. And what I want you to notice, go back to verse 4, is that Peter's using a lot of metaphors here. And in this metaphorically uh, metaphorical language, this rich language, uh, Peter is telling us that the spectacular Old Testament temple, which was a rectangle building made up of, in the language of this passage, dead stones, has now been replaced. That Old Testament tabernacle's been replaced by an even more spectacular, beautiful, constantly growing, constantly changing new temple made up of living stones. That is you and me, the people of God with one head, the head being Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is telling us, the Old Testament temple was fixed. It was a physical building. You could measure it. It didn't change. It was static, not dynamic, but not the church. The church is constantly changing, constantly morphing, constantly growing. Somebody's coming to Christ over here. There is a renewal, revival breaking out in another part of the world over there. So do you see Peter's vision? Peter is telling us the death of Christ, that's what he's talking about, in verse four, leads to the continual expansion of the body of Christ. That's verse five. He talks about we're being built, we're continually building, continually adding, adding a room here, adding a wing over there, Uh, as people come to Christ, as people uh, grow in Christ. And so the DNA of the church is that the church is constantly growing, constantly changing. Healthy churches are growing churches. Healthy churches are are regularly welcoming new people, but helping new people connect with people that are already a a part of the church. That's the imagery here. It's not static, it's dynamic, but there's more. Peter is telling us that each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, who have been redeemed by God the Son, has been sovereignly placed and shaped by God the Father, into the body of Christ. We're a stone. We have been indwelt by God the Spirit. It's a spiritual house. So that together we interlock, we interconnect, and we support each other as we declare God's praises, as we do good deeds, as we offer spiritual sacrifices in thousands of different ways. Through our integrity, our Christ-likeness, our our, our winsomeness. As we go, as we scatter out into the world, uh, uh, the marketplace, or uh, 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 our families, that they might flourish. And then here's the language of this passage. Uh, That people might come to Christ, that pagans might come to Christ. And that God might be glorified. Now, just under the surface of this, what Peter is really telling us is that there's two ways we can think of the church. We can think of the church as gathered, and we can think of the church as scattered. scattered. Either way, either way, gathered or scattered, Peter is telling us we are the very house of God. Now, you may think you don't matter very much. You may think what you do uh, doesn't matter very much. But Peter is saying your identity isn't a function of your ethnicity. is it a function of your education or lack of education or your marital status or what's going on circumstantially or your assets or your job? It's a function of who you are in Jesus Christ. So wherever you are, whatever you are doing, whether it's being a stay-at-home mom or a student, or maybe it's a busy teacher, a busy executive, or maybe it's a working single parent. As you scatter, the church scattered, you are a holy priesthood. Part of God's chosen people. You are a holy nation. So in other words, we don't just go to a spiritual house, we are the spiritual house as we scatter, gather scattered. And everything, therefore, everything we do as believers in Jesus Christ is ministry. And connecting new people, uh, new believers, uh, uh, people that have come, uh, outsiders. Is this always part of what we do? Because we're never growing, never expanding, adding a room here, adding a wing there. We're a spiritual house made of living stones. Now, if you understand the, the sequence inherent in this vision that Peter is laying out, then you understand that this will not, this will not happen. Apart from community, apart from the interconnection, one stone to another. Uh, The only way we get to verses 11 and 12, living the life described in verses 11 and 12, that beautiful life, is through verses 4 and 5. Now the week before last, I spent an uh, outstanding week at Princeton. I was with a couple other uh, people from uh, here at Wheaton Bible Church and we were part of uh, Tim Keller's uh, ministry looking at this subject for five days, Monday through Friday, in great detail of faith and work. It was frankly one of the best five days uh, training-wise, ministry-wise, I've spent in, in a long time. And it was uber rich in theology, which I happen to love. But as great as all of that was, what these leaders, uh, these ministry marketplace leaders kept saying over and over and over is that we will not live the gospel apart from gospel-centered community. Look at uh, how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Center Church. The gospel creates community. Community. Because it points us to the one who died for his enemies. It creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. Because it, that is the gospel, removes both fear and pride. People get along inside the church who could never get along outside, right? Uh, Because if the gospel calls us to holiness, uh, the people of God live in loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. Thus the gospel creates a human community radically different from any society around it. In other words, the gospel changes everything. And what the gospel does is it creates an alternative society. An alternative society that leads to the flourishing of all sorts of other societies all around us, Uh, marketplace, companies, families, neighborhoods, communities. But that society, this alternative society, is only as good, only as effective as the meaningful, thick community that takes place so the stones can support one another and interlock here, interlock there, move forward together. Now now I could go on, but but let me stop with that because that's the vision, that's Peter's vision. Now let me move to the nature of community and talk about why it matters. I see four uh, things here on community that I don't want you to miss. Number one, community matters because it deepens our character. And I don't know about you, but I really need my character deepened. Now look at verse 5. In verse 5, Peter tells us we are a holy priesthood. He could have said you're a priesthood. But he doesn't. He says you're a holy priesthood. In other words, you live a life of exceptional character. Now that's a big assignment. That's a tall order. None of us are equal to that. And so the question is, well, how does that happen? Well, let me go back to the Gospels. And let me set it up this way. In classrooms today, in terms of our educational model, students and teachers primarily relate to one another intellectually. It's in an academic environment. That's what school is about. And and so as as a result, they uh, usually don't eat together, uh, spend a lot of time together outside of a classroom. But when we come to Jesus, and, and Jesus' ministry in the gospels, we see something very different. Jesus created a learning community, to be sure, but he did it by spending each and every day with his 12 disciples. And they ate together, they traveled together, and they were continually wrestling with questions, uh, getting to the truth, applying Jesus' teaching to, to their lives. Now, I mention that because one thing that suggests is the best way we learn and apply God's word is in small groups, among friends. In the context of meaningful, thick uh, community where we can ask questions, where we can be honest, where we can get feedback. What in the world does Jesus mean in this statement? You see, just as the um, single most formative experience in your childhood development was your nuclear family, what the Bible tells us, what Peter is telling us here, is that the main way we grow, we form as Christians, is through deep involvement in groups. Groups within the family of God. It's the spiritual house factor. One stone next to another stone next to another stone next to another stone and we're growing together. And we interlock and we intersect. Now, common sense tells us we become most like those that we spend the most time with. There is no more important way for you to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ in character, in holiness, holy priesthood than in gospel-centered, thick community. That is verse five. Number two. A second reason this matters is because community shapes our behavior. So I'm moving here from character to behavior. It it shapes the desires underneath our behavior. Look at verse 11. Jump uh, to verse 11. Peter says there, abstain from sinful desires. Why? Why? Well, because they wage war against your soul. Now, let me tell you what sinful desires are. Sinful desires are the shark. And your behavior is the fin. Now, just think about that for a moment. Peter says your desires, or think your idol's, Wage war against your soul. The only way you and I will ever change our behaviors is by dealing with our desires, dealing with the shark underneath the water, underneath and behind our behavior. And the way God has designed this to happen is through the help of honest, meaningful community relationships. Relationships. So as an aside, parenthetically, healthy marriages, healthy groups talk about both the fin, the behavior, and the shark, the sinful desires, the idols underneath that drive our behavior. Uh, Let me take this a step further. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 6. We'll put it up here. God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. On the front end, the Hebrew behind sin is crouching at your door is a picture of an animal, a lethal animal, just waiting in the shadows to attack, kill, and destroy. And God is telling Cain that sin is just like that lethal lethal animal. And Cain, you need to be careful. So what is sin? Sin is the suicidal action of the human soul against itself. Against itself. And it creates a a, a dark reality that destroys and and stays and stays and stays. And, And Peter says it wages war against your soul. In other words, we are in a life and death battle with the shark. We tend to focus on the fin. It's the shark that's our problem. That's what Peter is saying. That's what Genesis 4, 6 is saying. And we need accountability. We desperately need accountability. Uh, We need encouragement. We need to help to win that battle and to live godly lives. So when Peter talks about this spiritual house on the front end of this passage, he is not saying dress up and go to church and pretend that everything is okay. Uh, Peter, as he unfolds this, is saying it's not okay. Man, you are in a life and death battle with your sinful desires, and you need uh, the stones around you interlocking and tight to do battle. And the, the, the divinely appointed means for you and I uh, to deal with this shark, to deal with the animal crouching in the shadows is our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. But they must be thick. They can't be thin. We talk about the thin, and we talk about the shark. Third, why does community matter? Well, community matters, we see here, uh, because it strengthens our love for God. When we look at verses 9 and 10, what do we see? We see uh, that we live lives that are so full of love for God that they're just constantly erupting in praise. And one of the ways you can tell, by the way, whether or not uh, you are in love with God is when you pray, is your prayer life have a fair amount of praise in it. And that's exactly what Peter is getting at here. The famous author, C.S. Lewis, uh, was an amazing guy. He was both brilliant and he was a man that was deeply and deeply in love with God. At one point in his life, his good friend, colleague, author, Charles Williams, died. And I, I want you to put up in just a second, don't put it up yet, I I, want to show you a section where C.S. Lewis is lamenting Charles Williams' death. And he talks about Ronald in what we're about to read. Ronald is J.R.R. Tolkien. Let's look at this. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall, never see agi- I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is dead or away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth. We possess each friend not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven. For every soul seeing him in her his or her own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. Uh, I read that, and my response is, wow. Wow. The reason we must be always open to outsiders, always open in our best, closest of relationships, the reason our networks in a church must be open and never closed is because one of the main ways God teaches us how to love him is through other people. Because it's other people that interpret God for us. Fourth, community expands our witness. This is the progression or the sequence here leading to verse 12, and we have this marvelous statement in verse 12 where you live lives among the pagans in, in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify God. Uh, some commentators argue as they come to Christ. Now, God has made each and every one of us with unique abilities, unique gifts. He's given us a unique set of circumstances, unique set of uh, relationships. And so when we gather in our groups, we gather so that as we scatter, we will continue to glorify God in our jobs, in our homes, in, in our neighborhoods, in our uh, communities by living a life of good deeds. That's verse 12, good words. So when God gives you a roommate, God gives you a friend, God gives you a a family, God gives you a job, God gives you a school, uh, God gives you a company, he gives you a ministry. And my job, my job is to equip you and to mobilize you so that when you scatter, (laughs) you might fulfill your calling to be a public disciple. a holy priest, Uh, living before the watching world, lives of good deeds. Uh, You want to tell me your job doesn't matter? I'll tell you, uh, no, man. No matter how difficult it is, no, no matter how bad it is, you have been given a platform to glorify Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Have you ever thought about the fact that one of the main ways God is working in the world is through his people, his church, his stones, as we scatter and we perform our paid and unpaid roles? One of the main ways God works. The church is gathered, the church scatters. But we can't do it alone. If there's going to be renewal, I I, I mean at any level, uh, friendship level, family renewal, uh, church renewal, cultural renewal, if there's going to be any renewal at all, it begins with heart renewal. And if there's going to be heart renewal, according to what Peter is saying, it it, it will begin with community renewal, with meaningful, open, uh, caring, loving groups where we talk about the fin and we talk about the shark. We're living stones. God is always adding people. He's making this incredible new temple, this spiritual house. Now, that brings me to the barrier to community. And this is something unique to us in the West, uh, and uh, unique uh, in this point in our, our history It wasn't this way some years back, but it has been this way now for a while, and that is the barriers that we in the church have allowed ourselves to be co-opted by our individualistic culture, and as a result, we have settled for an individualistic faith. So instead of emphasizing church-based discipleship, where baptism and the Lord's Supper is a really big deal, where corporate worship and, and preaching really matters, where uh, uh, we live in our groups and in our lives under submission uh, to the authority of the elders, uh, today, uh, instead of church-based discipleship, we emphasize Individualistic discipleship. So we have individual quiet times. And we have all sorts of groups that have no connection whatsoever with the authority of the elders. And church is optional. And if we're honest, our relationships are closed, our groups are closed, because our lives are closed. Peter says, however, we're being built into this house, constantly changing, constantly growing, room here, room there. I, I, I mean, think about it. Over, over the next two months, a couple of kids come to Christ at Glenbard North High School, Wheaton North High School. Uh, others come to Christ in the different high schools. Over the next couple of months, a couple of kids come to Christ at COD. Uh, some nurses, some doctors uh, come to Christ in the hospital this company over here uh, three people come to Christ this company over here uh, a, a, a woman comes to Christ they're going to need a group they're going to need to connect with other living stones and I don't want any of us in this house not to have room in our lives for them We are not, we are not a country club. We are a hospital. In Peter's language, we're a spiritual house. So the barrier is the air we breathe in our individualized, individualistic, I should say, culture. And so American Christianity has become an individualized Christianity Now, finally, I want to conclude by talking about how do we overcome this? What is is the key to overcoming uh, this barrier that we can get back to what Peter is talking about here at the end of the New Testament? Well, I think we need to start by being honest. And by that, I mean we need to understand that building community today is not going to be nearly as easy, nearly as natural as it was for our parents and our grandparents in the church. I mean, our lives are different, and so today, for many of us, it's un- it's uncomfortable. It seems overwhelming. It seems awkward. So, what are we to do? And the answer is in the first five words of our passage. Go back to the beginning of verse four. Peter says, "The key is we come to Jesus." Literally. We keep coming to Jesus. We continue to come to Jesus. We come to him, the living stone, each and every day of our lives. And so the solution to our aversion to thick community, gospel-centered community, is really beyond us. Uh, We're not equal to it. We can't do it. We want peace. We want privacy. I do Look at these words from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. Just a sentence. Without Christ, we would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our what? Okay, let's say that a little louder by our what? Ego. Ego. My ego. Your ego. Now, let me go back to my Princeton experience. Because of our sin, each of us is glory empty. We are starved for significance, honor, and worth. We're glory empty. We're glory starved. Now, that sin manifests itself in in two main ways. It makes us, on the one hand, often feel superior or overconfident, but on the other hand, it can make us feel underconfident, insecure, and guilty. Now, now, for some, this uh, uh, glory emptiness leads to a life of arrogance and bravado and self-centeredness. For others, it it leads to a life of desperation, depression, self-mutilation, hate, most of us tend to go back and forth between those two polar extremes. And until the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us, until in the language of Peter we come to Jesus, we will use people, we will not serve them. As Bonhoeffer says, the way is blocked because of our ego. The way to community is blocked because of our arrogance. Peter says it's our sinful desires. So what does Peter do at the front end of the passage? He issues an invitation to all of us. Come to Jesus. Uh, see Jesus, believe in Jesus, look at Jesus, continue to look at Jesus each and every hour of your day. Worship Jesus, fill your heart with Jesus. What does he mean? He means to the extent you understand Jesus' love for you, you will be free to love others. So when you see Jesus as rejected, verse 4, Uh, uh, rejected by the very men and women you and me he came to save Uh, when you see Jesus laying aside the perfect harmony he enjoyed in heaven and suffering and dying in complete humility for our arrogance when you see Jesus is isolated and and forsaken uh, by God to bear our sins on the cross. When you see the death and resurrection of Jesus as the most profound and beautiful event in your life. Because it offers a complete, perfect forgiveness and complete, perfect righteousness. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus loves you. And he sacrificed himself for you then you will put to death the idol of your self-love. And you will live in the power of the resurrection. And you will be free to love. Peter says, come to Jesus. Continue to come to Jesus. We can't do this, man. Everything in our culture is pulling against us. And when we do this, you know what happens? You you suddenly stop using people and you enjoy people for who they are. You suddenly stop comparing yourself to people around you. You suddenly stop pretending, man, and you're open and honest. Yeah, I got the fin, but let me tell you about the shark. I need help with the shark. And you will be open to people of different nationalities, different backgrounds, uh, different socioeconomic status. You will be open to people who are troubled because you share this common identity marker, this bond, and his name is Jesus. And it supersedes every other identity marker and bond in life. So if if you've never done so, come to Jesus, come to Jesus right now you may be thinking you know I'm not sure about that because I think maybe in atheism I find a better route well let me tell you what you won't find in atheism you won't find this love this community and you won't find a solution to dealing with the shark that is the source of your relationship problems. So come to Jesus. And if you've already done that, I want to invite you, based on what Peter is saying in verse 4, to continue to come uh, to Jesus and and die to yourself and live in the power of the resurrection. And as you do, you know what? Suddenly you start to connect and interlock and you live an open life. Wheaton Bible Church does not exist for itself. We exist so the cities, the communities, the neighborhood, the homes, the companies around us might flourish. But it's our community with one another. It's our openness, our our love, our, our outward orientation that makes that possible. Because community, according to Peter, is not an end. Do not make it an end. It's a means to glorifying God as we live lives characterized by good deeds, wherever we go, wherever he chooses to scatter us. Amen? Ted, come up and talk to us about how this might work.